Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Pod Save the UK. I'm Coco Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. And this week, we're saving the UK from a five-point plan that hates foreigners. And asking if Starmer and Reeves are shaping up to be an Osborne and Cameron tribute act. Plus, our guest is a man who's been in the room where it happens, former White House National Security Advisor and co-host of Pod Save the World, Ben Rhodes. Hey, Nish, how's your week been? My week's been absolutely fine, Coco. Yeah, yeah. I DJ'd again. Oh, did you? Yeah, I DJ'd again. What did you play? Just Sweet Caroline. Uh, no, repeat. so I I co-DJ'd uh, a set at my friend Stevie Martin's wedding, which yeah. was a wonderful, wonderful evening. A lovely time. What, uh, sort of, what sort of songs are we playing here? Well, I was DJing with uh, my friend Ed Gamble, mm-hmm. uh, and he and I have diametrically opposed music He's tests. put your hands up for Detroit, and you're like, no, hands in my pocket, we're listening to Pavement. No, no, no. He, he's, I'm... Beyonce and he's be rocking. Oh, really? <laughs> so it was an interesting and uneasy coalition right. on paper, but actually it worked amazingly. I would say we met each other in the middle and we aimed to please the majority of the audience. You know, we went from Pretty Fly from a white guy to uh, Beyonce. <laughs> we covered all of the polls. We went from, I believe, in a thing called Love by the Darkness to One Thing by Amory. Right. The one thing I would say is that if you looked at the songs, you would be able to guess to the day the age of the two men involved. <laughs> but obviously his name is Ed Gamble. My name is Nish Kumar. Uh, our DJ name, Child Nish Gamblino. Okay, good. Mouthful though, that one, isn't it? Child Nish Gamblino. <laughs> Say, I mean, it's not a competition, but like your songs sound better. Like objectively, you just nobody a... wants to dance to "I Believe in a Thing Called Love." Like people, nobody wants. People did. Weirdly. What moves? Like I don't what know. sort of moves? I like don't high know. kicks sort of, or a lot of high kicks. <laughs> a lot of high kicks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you. By that point, I'd had a couple of martinis, so I wasn't. I wasn't fully in my right mind. <laughs> okay. James Bond makes drinking martinis look a lot easier than it is in real life. <laughs> yeah. I always think that mostly about in any kind of political drama where they have like a whiskey with the senator. Unbelievable. Well, how? It's 11am. Well, I think based on the last decade and a half of politics, Coco, doesn't it make more sense if all of them were drunk the whole time? Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe you're right about that, actually. It makes more sense. It's been a massive week for new Home Secretary James Cleverley. He's been fronting up the government's latest push to tackle both legal and illegal migration. Ever since it was revealed two weeks ago that net migration last year hit 750,000, there's been growing pressure on the government, mainly from the right wing of the Conservative Party, to come up with a plan to bring the number down. So on Monday, Mr Cleverley unveiled a five-point plan that he said would cut arrivals by 300,000. More on that in a moment. Because... Barely having drawn breath, Cleverly was straight onto a plane to Rwanda where he signed a new treaty alongside the Rwandan foreign minister. This, this, this is designed to address the Supreme Court judges who ruled three weeks ago that the government's plans to send asylum seekers on a one-way trip to Rwanda in order to deter small boat crossings, they say, was unlawful. Here's Mr Cleverly speaking at a press conference in the Rwandan capital, Kigali. I really hope that we can now move quickly. 
we've addressed the um, uh, the issues that were raised uh, by their lordships in this treaty, and that will be reflected in domestic legislation soon, because we are absolutely committed to breaking the business model of these people smuggling gangs, to create a, self and uh, a safe and welcoming environment with our friends and partners here in Rwanda, but also making sure that mass migration is, is well managed into the future. So just in case you weren't keeping score, that makes it number of Home Secretaries we sent to Rwanda, three, number of asylum seekers we sent to Rwanda, nil. So I want to talk about that five-point plan to tackle uh, legal migration. Among the measures announced were foreign care workers will be banned from bringing family members into the UK. The salary threshold required for skilled foreign workers to get a visa will rise to £38,700 and a review of the graduate visa route. What are you thinking about this, Nish? In terms of this, the salary threshold for a visa, um, we should say that there are kind of individual details that are worth examining. The minimum salary threshold for a skilled worker is going to rise to £38,700. Um, from the current level, which is £26,000, though health and care workers are exempt from this rise. But in addition to that, overseas care workers will no longer be able to bring family dependents, which James cleverly said is a measure that will end the abuse of the health and care visa. I think that this is an example of a policy that can only be crafted by a government that's not living in the real world. Mm -hmm. Because if you have in any way had to deal with the health system or the social care system, you will understand that those two systems are powered by immigrants. Mm. And at certain points, your racism and your hostility to migrants becomes an act of self-immolation. Like it becomes completely self-defeating. And asking people to come here to work in the health and care sectors and telling them that they can't bring their spouses is inhumane and will almost certainly decimate the numbers of people willing to come over here. Now, we've already damaged it by uh, making it complicated for EU citizens to come here after Brexit. It will decimate the health and social care sectors. What they aren't offering is a plan to put in place mm. for how they're going to replace these workers in the short term. They can talk about training people all they want, but that isn't going to make up the shortfall in the short to medium term. I have family members that have recently had to use both the health and social care systems. I've seen firsthand mm. the extent to which, whether you're using the NHS and the government's health and social care systems, or you're using the private social care system, these are entirely industries populated by immigrants. It's an astonishing act of self-harm yes. that the government is perpetrating. And it's what happens if you exclusively govern based on trying to generate positive opinion pieces in the Telegraph and the Mail. And we have seen this play out already. Liz Truss's mini-budget was essentially designed to appeal to the five people that have newspaper columns in the Telegraph and the Mail, and that blew up the entire country. This is setting another very, very short-fused time bomb under the health and social care sector. Right, and I would be very interested to hear if there's any real meaningful polling from the general public about this, particularly if we're talking about NHS and, and care sectors. The public generally are quite in favour of um, immigration into that because they recognise the need of it. Now, I do appreciate that there's like exemptions for that sector, but I think there's a good uh, sort of case study there that when we understand the application of you know, fresh faces, new blood to the country, we, we can get over any fears. A thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently is... 
just the idea that you have to earn a certain certain amount of money to fall in love with someone who's yeah. like lives in a different place and just that idea of the reality of you can't choose who you fall in love with i don't know how to explain it i just find it sort of um just unkind really you yeah. know the idea that families could be separated i mean you know there's, there's there's also people in the the country at the moment who probably will now no longer now be able to get a visa extension because yeah. they don't quite you know meet the, meet these new requirements so those are relationships that may be severed and there's just something about like when you think about a person in love or a family it just starts to really hit home how cruel it is and unkind it is a good friend of mine is um currently dating an american man and she doesn't earn enough for him to come over on her citizenship and actually like lots of women don't earn that amount of money you know depending on what sector they're in women will generally earn somewhere between seven to fifteen percent less than a man so again the limitation of opportunities based on you know just the the societal problems that we have if you're a woman if you're a person of color if you happen to live in a certain area and 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 that being written into a policy that just kind of makes it clear, basically, if you've got money, you can do what you like, you can yeah. fall in love, you can yeah. travel, you can do anything you want, but all the rest of you suck it up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's absolutely the message here, right? Yeah. It's it, it's freedom of movement for the wealthy. Mm. The, the entire world is open to somebody that earns above a certain income threshold. And, I mean, we should also say, you know, this would have a hugely detrimental impact on the academic sector. Yes. You know, if you want people to come here and do their PhDs, there's no way they're going to earn above that income threshold. And so, again, what happened to the idea that we're trying to attract the best and brightest? You should have serious reservations about the uses of those kinds of terms. But now it's just morphed into we don't want anyone. (laughs) We don't want anyone. And we want our country to essentially go to shit yeah 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 i mean like you know we we talk about on this podcast that we, we want to be a space for hope but yeah. this week i've been feeling a bit bleak <laughs> yeah and i don't just mean the weather i mean you know <laughs> keir starmer he's having an interesting week isn't he yeah let's talk about that yeah, yeah let's talk about how he praised margaret thatcher in a sunday telegraph piece uh, the official quote is that uh, he praised thatcher for setting loose on natural entrepreneurialism it's obviously a ploy to attract uh, the paper's Tory readers he followed that up with a big speech the next day on the economy in which he seemed to be promising that labor would give us a i mean a cover version of tory austerity yeah. and anyone who expects an incoming labor government to quickly turn on the spending taps is going to be disappointed. Inflation, debt, taxes are now huge constraints. Of course, we will make different choices on the non-DOM tax status invested in cutting NHS waiting lists, on removing private school tax breaks invested in high-quality teaching and our children's mental health. But at the same time, we will be ruthless when it comes to spending every pound wisely. It doesn't, it doesn't fill you with, with hope, does it? Yes, this idea that we're getting a... Is it Austerity 3.0? I don't mm. know. I don't know what... It's a, Austerity 95, Austerity XP. I don't know <laughs> yeah. where we are with the latest iteration of Austerity. I think, once again, we're back to this question of, is Starmer essentially asking people to take a lot of stuff on trust and essentially saying that he's campaigning via the medium of winking, Mm, effectively. mm -hmm. Because if what they're committing to is sticking to what Jeremy Hunt has proposed in the most recent autumn statement, that is completely unworkable. You know, that's that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of 
any number of respected economists and people who understand how governments are financed, mm. that what Hunt has proposed is absolutely unworkable. The cuts he's proposed across government departments will essentially leave us with the Treasury being a guy called Derek with a calculator watch. <laughs> so are we supposed to essentially take on trust this idea that on day one, a proposed Labour government will basically go, by the way, all of that was BS. One observation from Aditya Chakraborty in The Guardian that I thought was really interesting was just about like, you know, cost of living and inflation. And if you want to keep things exactly the same, the state bill will go up yeah, yeah. each year. So if you keep things the same, you know, it's a real terms pay cut. And yeah. So exactly as you say, like we're looking at austerity again. Vote Labour, get austerity doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine there's many parts of the Labour Party electorate who are excited or feel hopeful. I don't remember that feeling hope, do you? <laughs> well, I look. think I had it once. I can't recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think this is a pitch to woo uh, Tory voters uh, to vote Labour. And um, as much as I say that I want politicians to hold to their promises, if they backtrack on this one, I'd be personally yeah, thrilled. Yeah. Very sensible people who support Keir Starmer are assuring me that this is, um, you know, part of a strategy to woo Tory voters. And then when he comes to power, he'll change his tune. Fine. Just to flag up that we haven't forgotten about the COVID inquiry Um Boris Johnson, as we record, uh, is has just started uh, his two-day grilling uh, by the inquiry. And on Friday, we'll be popping up uh, with a special bonus episode where we'll actually be speaking to someone who lost a family member to COVID who's at the inquiry to hear what the former Prime Minister has to say firsthand. So look out for that special bonus PSUK episode coming out on Friday. Coming up next, we've got a very, very special guest. Uh, I was very, very thrilled uh, to have the chance to, uh, earlier today, interview Ben Rhodes. He's the co-host of Pod Save the World. And we had a really great conversation and I'm really excited for you to hear it. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by even the royals on Wondery. When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette, but everything you know about her is wrong. Or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate measures. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Pod Save America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. 
Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Don Lux. Don Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked, and use code helixpartner20. Ho, ho, ho. Christmas is rapidly approaching, and Christmas is a time for family gatherings. And as such, we've gathered one of the Podsafe family onto the show. Ben Rhodes will be familiar to many of you as the presenter of Pod Save the World. He's also a former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama. Welcome to Pod Save the UK, Ben. Really good to be here in London. What, uh, I'm going to ask you the first question we, under the current administration and post-Brexit, ask all foreigners who come here, what the fuck are you <laughs> yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah. I'm in uh, London doing some stuff for the Obama Foundation. Yeah. Uh, so I still work for Barack Obama. I'm still on payroll. Um, so I do some meetings with some of the young leaders in our networks and, you know, try to build that support for the Obama Foundation here. And I was just in Bratislava, yeah. Slovakia, where I attended a conference on democracy that one of uh, the people in the Obama Foundation Networks hosted. And uh, my brother lives here. Oh, so nice. uh, I'll be seeing him too. A little family, the Pod Save the UK family and the actual Rhodes family. <laughs> um, it's always really interesting to get an outsider's view of British politics. Yeah. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, Jan Godfrey, has got in touch on Twitter to say, uh, can you ask Ben how hilarious he finds British <laughs> politics? Uh, you know, the thing I'd say about British politics is, uh, as an American uh, living through a age of complete idiocy and dysfunction in our own democracy. Whenever I feel really bad about myself and the politics in my country, I always know I can look to the UK uh, to feel a little bit better because if I can go through Brexit and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and now Rishi uh, and the return of David Cameron, there's always something. There's always something I can count on over here to make me feel a little bit better. Um, it's very funny because um, one of the first meetings I had about potentially doing this show was yeah. with your Pod Save the World co-host, Tommy Vitor. Yeah. And that's almost verbatim what he said. That's almost verbatim why he said he wanted to do this. We, 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 we really like covering British politics. Yeah. Uh, but we now knew we had to defer to you guys to save the UK. But <laughs> we loved covering because it was always uh, ridiculous and kind of hilarious. You know, Boris Johnson was always up to something kind of insane, you yeah. know, whether it's you know, partying in COVID or whatever was going on at number 10 or um, just some stupid shit he said that day. Um, so I, we still enjoy like delving into it from time to time because it makes us feel better. Did you have any specific dealings with Johnson? Did, uh, did yes. You guys, you guys overlapped when he was We did. Uh, I, I really didn't like him. Um, <laughs> so here's the thing. So, you know, because you deal a lot. I mean, I was in for eight years. We dealt a ton with mainly the Cameron government. Yeah. Um, the dealings with Boris Johnson, there was one thing I liked about Boris Johnson. Yeah. Which was in 2012, Mitt Romney, uh, who was running against Obama, came here and he 
somehow decided that it would be a good idea to trash London uh, yeah. because he had done the Olympics in Salt Lake City and he kind of did their typical Republican thing like London is not ready. It's this crime infested, you know, yeah, right. you know, whatever. And Boris Johnson got up and did this thing where he's like, there's this guy, this guy called Mitt Romney. He says we're not ready. Are we ready? You know, and, and he just trashed Romney. And that was actually quite helpful to us in 2012. But then when we came in 2016 uh, at the request of the Cameron government, because they needed somebody credible to try to defend the Remain campaign. Um, Boris Johnson wrote some insane op-ed. We land and I get this op-ed and it's like, Barack Obama hates the UK because I, I can tell you word for word. It was the Park Kenyan president's yes. ancestral dislike for the and United Kingdom. And it was Kingdom, so yeah. racist. Yeah. Like, it was just yeah. like, this Kenyan guy yeah. hates us because of the empire. And, and and first of all, it kind of suggested, again, like like Donald Trump, that Obama was Kenyan, not American. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the idea that his identity would mean that somehow he loathes the empire. I mean, first of all, He's kind of telling on himself there, yeah. right? You know, like uh, the Kenyans should have been grateful to yeah. us. And it was just so grotesque. And I was like, really? This is where politics is going in the UK? Of course, that's where politics is going in the US too. Like we kind of seem to go in tandem and parallel on these yeah. things. So I didn't like deal with him personally, but he was, you know, he also was always complaining about Obama removed some bust of Winston Churchill from the Oval Office, which, by the way, he replaced with a bust of Martin Luther King. So somewhat understandable that the first black president would be like, you know what? No slight against Churchill. It's just let's get some MLK. But, you know, that he was gravely offended by that. So there was a kind of weird like racial undertone, a lot of the criticism of Obama. So that was my impression of Boris Johnson. I think you've got him absolutely down there. (laughs) I sort of wish more British voters had got the accurate impression you received. It it wasn't hard, you know, to figure it out, you know, like uh, where this guy was coming from. You know, the other thing I remember is the Cameron people loathed him, right? Because they felt stabbed in the back. Uh, I think he'd led them to believe he was going to support the Remain campaign. And then, of course, now I'm like having to go through passport lines to get in and out of this country. So uh, we know how that turned out. There's not a huge amount to say about his um, immediate successor because uh, she she was prime minister for, I, I think, a sort of, heavy bowel movement yeah, period. Yeah, but the, yeah. the, the person who took over afterwards, obviously, uh, is Rishi Sunak. And what's your first impressions? My first impression was, if you are a party that has put this country through austerity, um, that has almost completely tanked the economy with Liz Truss's kind of extreme uh, preference for wealthy people and tax cuts, it's kind of an interesting choice to go with a technocratic, uh, you know, uber wealthy guy. It seemed kind of tone deaf to what their vulnerabilities might be. I understood that, you know, he's more competent than Liz Truss. Okay, this guy, he might stabilize things a little bit because he's not going to destroy the Bank of England. Yeah. But um, but it does just seem like... It's a very low threshold. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Finger on the pulse of the working man is not the uh, vibe I get from Rishi. From from somebody who comes from the Yes We Can campaign, this man will not destroy the Bank of England. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Upbeat residents. Yeah. Um, he doesn't exactly command uh, the international stage. Uh, here he is. Uh, this is a clip of him uh, being rather shown up by a journalist for Politico at COP28 last week. The King has been here for two days. Uh, other world leaders are staying into the weekend. You've been here a matter of hours. You're due to leave again imminently. Uh, you'll have spent more time on the private plane than on the ground at the summit. Um, are you really taking COP28 seriously and what's so pressing that you need to leave so soon? So, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't measure our impact here by hours spent. I would measure it by the actual things that we're doing that are making a difference. 
And uh, you know, as I said, the conversations that I've been having with people are incredibly positive. I mean, it does speak to exactly what you said about his the political vulnerabilities of Rishi Sunak. I mean, there's, it's not a coincidence. The, the journalist didn't have to include private jet, but yeah. it says a lot about the way that he's perceived because of his wealth and yeah. His background. Yeah, and, and um, the climate issue too. Like he, the other thing about him is that he he seems to tack back and forth. Look, I, I'll say this for him: he he's not like a comfortably far right figure or even kind of populist right wing figure yeah. like a Boris Johnson was or or Liz Truss was. But you know, he clearly tacks in that direction on climate, for instance. You yeah. know, like he. Yeah, it, Boris, I don't know, maybe because of his wife or something, but he was more like, he at least tried to kind of pay more lip service to this. And, and Glasgow, I think the UK could have done a lot more under yeah. the Tory government on climate change. But like Rishi's not taking this seriously, you know? And and, and the idea that you can kind of parachute or private jet into uh, the UAE and, and get credit for that when you don't really have a robust climate plan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this to me is one of the better contrasts for labor, like that. This is one area where at least they they have a program that is yeah. is in like stark contrast. But but yeah, it's it's hard for him to get past the the private the private jet thing sticks a little bit more to him. Um, just to briefly return to Labour, um, obviously the poll surge continues here. Um, Starmer's team have been meeting with Democrats. I think Rachel Reeves has been over yeah. there as well. Um, what's your uh, initial perceptions of Starmer? And do you think he's somebody that maybe Joe Biden is looking at as someone he could deal with maybe more productively uh, than the most recent couple of conservative prime ministers? My, my perception is they are very intent on winning, you know? <laughs> um, uh, which is a good thing, by yeah. the way. Like it's sometimes on the left, we get uncomfortable with that, yeah. but actually you do have to win. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Starmer came in and his basic theory of the case was um, I need to take over this party. It's going to be a little messy with uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters, but uh, I'm just going to be full speed ahead, tacking to, towards the center. Um, because I think that that's the recipe for labor victory here, mm. that the Tories are kind of self-immolating, um, particularly through the Liz Trust period. So therefore, I need to present myself as a smart, credible, competent alternative to these crazy people. Um, I think what's been interesting, and I know some people on the left have been frustrated, and and I understand why, that there there haven't been kind of more willingness to take riskier positions or more uh, seemingly principled positions on some things. I think what they've done that's interesting is there is some uh, mirroring of of things that the Democratic Party and, and, and the Biden administration have done in terms of having like a significant, you know, clean energy uh, vision, a focus on making a healthcare system work better, and on on some form of like a UK, what we'd call in the US industrial policy, like yeah. how do we bring back kind of, you know, certain types of manufacturing jobs or certain industries here? How do we prioritize um, the development of certain industries? So I, I think he would be like a very natural, you know, knock on wood, if Joe Biden gets reelected. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that, Keir Starmer probably is a better chance than uh, Biden, who's probably at a 50-50 chance. But yeah, I, I think they'd be very complimentary. I think they'd have, you know, pretty common domestic agendas. And on foreign policy, you know, I don't see a lot of daylight potentially yeah, sure. between the two of them. I, frankly, they're both a bit out of step with probably where I would be on something like Gaza. Yeah, Keir's like built the brand to be able to win. You have to you have to have a capacity to inspire people a bit, um, and so he still has more hurdles to clear here. Yeah, you know, we should definitely talk about Gaza, as given your kind of expertise. I, I hope everybody that listens to this podcast is listening to Pod Save the World. The Gaza coverage has been impeccable, but at the moment, 
with the um, resumption of hostilities, um, how long can the US and UK position of unequivocal support for Netanyahu continue? I mean, the numbers are are eye-watering. Like, it's the number of civilian deaths, the images we're all seeing, the... The, the kind of incursions now into South Gaza, which is kind of where they told the population to go. Yeah. Now the fact that they're following them in there with kind of full military might. H- how tenable is the US and UK policy? I think it's untenable. We tried to unpack this. With the, yeah. But like October 7th is was absolutely horrifying and an absolutely traumatizing event for Israel. And so the impulse to do something, to go after Hamas to defend Israelis um, is entirely understandable. I think what we've learned, though, is that this government under Bibi Netanyahu um, cannot be trusted at all to do that in a way that has any regard for Palestinian life Um, or any regard, frankly, to even what they're hearing from the U.S. and U.K. privately, which is, you know, you need to follow the laws of war. You need to reduce civilian casualties. You need to have a plan in the long term for Gaza that is under a Palestinian administration. Um, you can't displace mass amounts of people. Th- that that's just being ignored, you know. And and so to me, that's the reason it's untenable is because of I don't trust Netanyahu, and I right. and we can see what type of military operation they're doing. It's a maximalist military operation. I thought that you know there was a pause to get hostages out. I think that. Part of the hope or expectation was that if they did resume the military operation, it'd be more limited, it'd be more targeted. It's not. It looks the same as it did before. They've displaced, you know, well over a million people. As you said, they told them to go from the north to the south. Now they're bombarding the south. Where are these people supposed to go? Um, and and so I, that's, I think there should be a ceasefire um, because, number one, you you need to just the scale of human suffering is is untenable. Number two, I actually think some people will say, well, you can ask them to go back to October 6th. They're not going back to October 6th. Not only have they damaged a lot of Hamas infrastructure yeah. and taken out a lot of Hamas guys, but on October 6th, the IDF, the Israeli military, was not on the border. Like they were not securing that border. They were up in the West Bank um, protecting settlers who were in clashes with Palestinians, they'd let their guard down. So I actually think that Israel is much more secure even today. The, the danger of continuing to do what they're doing is obviously to the Palestinians, but also to Israel, like the, the international uh, horror at what's happening is just going to build. And you saw the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who's a former general, say publicly the other day, this could turn into a strategic defeat for Israel. You know, if yeah. essentially they destroy the Gaza Strip, you've got 2 million homeless people, uh, no plan for governance of Gaza, and Israel has vastly isolated itself internationally. Like, whatever they destroy of Hamas could bring a different kind of cost to Israel. And so I don't think they're doing themselves any favors. So I think the the best thing for Israel, and obviously for the Palestinians, is for the U.S. and the U.K. to be to be more critical here of what's happening, because I don't think what's happening is good for anybody. You said that you would personally find yourself on a differing position to the current US-UK position. What what would that position be? Well, number one, I'd be more willing to publicly criticize uh, Israeli actions. I mean, there's something tragicomic about where the Biden administration has found itself, because 
they fully embraced, literally embraced Netanyahu um, after, yeah. uh, you know, after October 7th. But uh, even after they started to signal that they were going to put a siege on Gaza. Um, and and then they started, when, when it was clear that this was going in the direction it was going, they started to say publicly, well, we fully embrace them in public, but we, we criticize them in private. Yeah. Which is kind of a weird thing to have yeah, to say because yeah. it's like that— like, why not just yeah, <laughs> take yeah. the next step here, guys? Yeah. Um, but I think Biden is just so instinctively, as an older American politician, he, that that's what you do. You embrace uh, the Israeli government. The point is that this is this Israeli government is led by Bibi Netanyahu. So what I'd be doing is I'd be very clear about what we see publicly that we don't agree with. Um, I would uh, I, I would be pressing for not, not just a ceasefire, but a political strategy here. Yeah. I don't think you can destroy Hamas militarily without having a multi-month military operation that just destroys Gaza and radicalizes the Palestinian population yeah. and isolates Israel. I think what I'd be doing is saying to the Arab states, you know, including people like the Emiratis who have a lot of money, yeah. hey, you're going to come into Gaza. Um, you're going to be a temporary multinational kind of peacekeeping uh, administration here. And let's work together to build a different Palestinian leadership than Hamas. Hamas absolutely has to be sidelined. There's no role for Hamas in the future pol- politics of the Palestine. But let's find an alternative leadership and invest in it and build something that can become a Palestinian state. That, to me, is the only way to, to really try to solve this problem in the, in the long run. Um, and you hear that language, uh, we want a Palestinian state, or we want a Palestinian authority to take over in Gaza. But like, there, there's, there has to be a political will um, to, to press Israel um, yeah. to move in that direction. And frankly, Netanyahu is very weak politically in Israel. I think the, 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 there's, there's a ripeness for a new Israeli government to come in. Like, let's face it, Netanyahu publicly is not in favor of Palestinian state. Yeah. There have been reports that I entirely believe because he did the same thing when I was in government. Yeah, I was going to say, because you've, you've, yeah. you've been in rooms with him. What he tells the, the right wing in Israel is, I'm the guy who can prevent a Palestinian state because yeah. I'm a good front man. Like some of these more right wing people in his coalition, he says to them, let me be the, the front man for this effort to essentially deny the Palestinians a state. And, and, and I think that you know, there needs to be a transition in Israel that is open to not just Palestinian state, but to that kind of state building in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and, and hopefully that's where the Biden team is. They're evolving in that direction. Um, but, I, but I think they need to get there fast. Because, I, I, look, I'd say, again, it's the right thing to do morally. And I think for, for Israel's own security, politically, um, this the, the young voters, uh, voters of color in the United States, obviously Arab and Muslim voters, um, they are they are signaling that they will not vote for Joe Biden over this. And it, it'd be pretty interesting if after everything that America has been through, Joe Biden loses the election over yeah. over this. There are much more serious issues at play here than who's going to win our respective it, it, elections. There, there, yeah. we, we should stress that is looking appraising the situation realistically from a political perspective that it does have consequences particularly for center-left parties labor i mean the same thing i would imagine is true for labor here right and maybe even more so given the 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 nature of the potential labor constituencies so there's a lot of reasons for for i think a, a a shift in tone on this thing we're actually hearing you know from a lot of british politicians you know ultimately we back israel unequivocally but we still support in the long term a two-state solution. We see that as the only way. But what you're saying is actually, you, you, you talk about backing Israel. You're talking about an Israel led by a Netanyahu government. You have to be realistic about who is in the positions of power here. And from your experience of being in these kind of, you know, on diplomatic missions 
working with in Jerusalem, working in Washington, you're, the point you're trying to make here is that it is a contradiction in terms to say that you both support the government led by Benjamin Netanyahu and a two-state solution. Th- that is not possible. Like I, you know, and th- like I, like I, it drives me crazy when people say we unequivocally back the Israeli government and we support a Palestinian state because it is not only does this Israeli government not support a Palestinian state, th- their objective is to prevent a Palestinian state and to increase settlements in the West Bank and and to have some de facto control over Gaza, probably then this. Again, Hamas bears responsibility for what they did on October 7th. Um, Hamas is not any part of any solution. Um, but my experience in eight years with Bibi Netanyahu is it, he did not want a Palestinian state. Um, and and actually, he's moved further to the right from even when I was in government. Yeah. And, and look, I would say to people that find it difficult, look, I'm Jewish. Um, I care about <laughs> deeply about the Jewish people, about Israel. What I'd say is that from my perspective, because some people sometimes say to me, like, you're, you're, you're criticizing Israel. I think backing Israel, supporting Israel is trying to support what I believe are better outcomes for Israel. And I think this is a dangerous path for Israel to go down. I, if you truly want to be a good friend to somebody, you don't tell them to keep doing the bad thing that you see them doing. You try to counsel your friend to do something different. Look, there's only three ways this goes. There's either there's a two-state solution or the Palestinians are pushed out of their land and, and it all becomes Israel, which a number of people in this coalition have said they want. Yeah. You know, so this is not like me, conspiracy theory. Like this no. is the stated position of a bunch of people in Netanyahu's government. Or it's this status quo where Israel has this kind of de facto control over the West Bank. There's settlements increasing. There's a blockade in Gaza. And that, that status quo we've learned is not sustainable either. So to me, like you can frame this as, 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 as unequivocally supporting Israel. But I think the Netanyahu government, just like the Trump government in the U.S., just like, you know, some of the Tory governments here yeah. are, are not good for the yeah. country. You know, it, it's like saying that you can only be a friend of America if you fully support everything Donald Trump did when he was president. Yeah. You know? Briefly, because uh, I know we're running out of time, I just want to quickly touch on something you've already alluded to, which is the possibility of another Trump presidency yeah. uh, in 2024. And um, obviously there's a huge raft of domestic issues um, that that brings with it. It's also something of a foreign policy hand grenade around yeah. the corner, given the situations uh, in Gaza and in Ukraine are not likely to be resolved anytime soon. Yeah. If we talk about a second potential Trump administration as being Trump sort of unleashed, what does that look like in foreign policy terms? What's interesting is the domestic dystopia you described is, you know, he, he, he when he came in the first time, he had no idea what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. He, he didn't expect a win. What they did the first couple of years is they just hired a bunch of pretty conventional people to run the government. So a lot of, you know, the, the chief of staff in the White House and the National Security Advisor, they were former generals. Um, the defense sector is a former general. The Secretary of State was a fossil fuel executive. Yeah. Um, not my choices, but these were like normal humans on a yeah, spectrum yeah, yeah. Of, of American politics. Then they started to figure out, Trump did, that these people wouldn't do all the crazy shit he wanted them to do. Right. And so they steadily replaced him. So by the end of the Trump administration, it was a bunch of lunatics running everything. Yeah. And that's how you get January 6th. The reason I say that is those people will be in charge of everything from day one. Yeah. Domestically and on foreign policy. Yeah. It'll just be the crazy people running everything. 
his real you know, focus is going to be on this kind of autocratic play at home. But the reason that interacts with foreign policy is I think it's going to turbocharge the already very dangerous trend we see of the world reverting into just kind of nationalist authoritarian leadership. The U.S. support for Ukraine will just be over, period. Yeah. That's it. Like Putin will have whatever he wants to do. That's fine with the United States. Um, you know, the U.S. may pull pull back from, if not out of, institutions like NATO. But I think the, the thing I'd be more concerned about than anything is how the domestic descent of the U.S. into kind of autocratic nationalism interacts with the rest of the world. Because I think then we'd be looking at a world in which you've got Trump in the U.S., you've got Xi Jinping in China, you've got Narendra Modi in India, you've got Vladimir Putin in Russia. You've just got these big, strong men nationalists. No rules, you know, yeah, like you mentioned Gaza, like BBNet, go displace yeah. all 2 million of those people. Yeah. All 2 million of those people pushed him into Egypt. Like, we don't care. Yeah. Like, the, Trump's never going to criticize them for anything. It's going to incentivize the worst impulses of all of these people globally. Yeah. And I think leave Europe in this uncomfortable place where, you know, how do they fit into that picture? You know, the EU is, is not, like, governed by some nationalist strongman who can, you know... Uh, so I, I, I think it's going to leave the the UK and Europe kind of ducking and covering uh, amidst this kind of pretty dangerous world. Before we go, um, I ha- we've received a somewhat intriguing tweet uh, when we put a call out for questions for you um, from at Mademoiselle Defarge Knit. People use their at, a great, at names yeah. when they correspond with us. We really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, simply says, ask him about the time you met the Queen at a banquet. Oh, um, so the best Queen story I have is I was uh, at a D-Day commemoration and there was a leaders only uh, luncheon that was happening. Right. Um and so there was no staff even supposed to be in there. But it was at the beginning of the first Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. And the photographer, because the photographer could kind of be in there, um, comes and kind of rushes out. And he's like, Obama's talking to Putin. And this was hugely important conversation, obviously impactful. And and someone needed to be there to hear what was said. Yeah. You know? And so... Being the typically arrogant American that I am, I, I just run into the leader's room. I'm like, I'm literally running. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I got to get in there. And and I ignored all the protocol. I go in, find Obama and Putin. I, I get there just in time to kind of hear the end of this conversation, which was uh, typically frosty, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, but it was important to hear that because the Russians always read out these conversations yeah, right. their own way. And so as the guy who had to talk to the press about it, I'd do that. But I was like, ty- I was full disclosure, I was like super hungover because I, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to have to work that day because like it was the end of a trip. And so we've been at, Congratulations on endearing yourself to a British audience. Yeah, well, we've been out the whole night before in Paris and I was like, oh, I got an easy day tomorrow. We're just going to fly up to Normandy and I don't have to go to this lunch. So I'm like not feeling, I'm sweating. Like I'm just like, I got to find a bathroom uh, to just like run some water in my face and like catch a breath here. So I find a, uh, a bathroom and I do that thing and this happened to all of us where you try to open the door and you can't tell if it's locked or not. Yeah. And so you're kind of pushing the door a few times and it, and then you finally realize like, oh, it's locked, forget it. And right when I take a step back from having done that, the door opens and it's the Queen of England. <laughs> <laughs> the Queen of England. And like, it's embarrassing enough when you do that and it's like anybody comes out, you know, and you just feel like, oh, I'm that asshole. And she comes out and she has like the handbag on her arm and she kind of looks at me and she like adjusts the handbag, like, like, as, I mean, literally I felt like someone was looking through me 
and I might, I thought I might die on the site, you know, um, and just walks off. Uh, and so that's my best interaction with the, the, the queen. I think you're one of probably about, I'm going to say 10 people that has had to follow the queen into the toilet. That doesn't happen to her very much. To her. And to, to, to be clear, I, I did go in, you know, and uh, it smelled very regal in there, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the real exclusive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Queen Elizabeth yeah. left a regal aroma in the toilet. <laughs> no, in a good way, in a good way. I mean that in the best possible sense. Um, so, yeah, but she was, uh, I uh, I met her at Buckingham Palace too once and she's, you know, incredibly, I mean, I, you meet all these people in these jobs she she and the pope are there there's very few people that you're just uh, intimidated to be in their yeah. presence and she was definitely one of them um ben thank you so much we really appreciate you coming down and seeing us and uh it's always a pleasure to see somebody from the pod safe family yeah no well if we look pod save the world our job is to save the world but if we fail maybe you can at least save the uk <laughs> you know, it's one way to look at it <laughs> thanks ben. good to see you You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. It's here on Villain of the Week time, and every so often we like to go against type, and I get to have a break from being angry. So it's Coco giving us our villain today. Who have you gone for, Coco? So my villain of the week is the construction company Caledonian Modular. They've gone bust. They were brought to my attention by a Pod Save the UK listener, Laura. Uh, Last week, the government announced that three schools the company built across England are having to be demolished because they're unsafe, directly impacting hundreds of school children and their families. Laura wrote in to tell us that her daughter goes to one of the schools, Sir Frederick Gibbard College in Harlow, Essex, which was completed in 2021 at a cost of £29 million. During the summer holidays, Laura was informed that the school wouldn't be reopening in September after a survey revealed structural issues which weakened its ability to withstand extreme weather. Pupils have been in temporary classrooms under just massive marquees ever wow. since, with porter cabins not ready yet. Uh, parents were told in a meeting last Friday that the building will now be knocked down and a new one wouldn't be ready until 2027. I spoke to Laura earlier and asked her what the conditions for her daughter, who's midway through secondary school, have been like. From the outside, they look like the bake-off tent, but they are slightly sturdier. Um, they have been insulated over half term. They've put better heating in. Um, but it's on a field, which they've had a bit added some tarmac to, so they don't fall over when it's cold. My daughter said on the way home that they now have flies. Wow. And then the, uh, the icing on the cake for my daughter was when the cables got nicked and they were out of power 
for 24 hours and she had to be at home again. And that's when she asked if she could go to a different school. How did it feel now they finally decided to demolish it? It's great that they're moving on and they have made the decision and they have put a a skeleton plan in place, but it's going to take a long time. Uh, We would like to move our daughter out and that is not anything to do with the education she's receiving. With the staff and the head, we absolutely love them. I would love to stay with them. Um, It's just being on a building site until she's finished her secondary education it doesn't it's not feasible really that's bananas isn't it incredible secondary school was hard enough without being in a wet tent anyway just just to mention about this particular school they are going to get porter cabins they're due to arrive in the spring they can't get them earlier because of the rack scandal wait so because the schools were built with concrete filled with air bubbles Mm -hmm. and now they're falling down so all we've got a that is fucking depressing. So We've bleak, got a porter cabin it? shortage because so the schools bleak. are all falling down. I'm quite literally waiting for a series of Bake Off where they're like, we no longer have the tent because we donated it to a school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just utterly ludicrous. So alongside that school in Essex, the other schools being demolished are Buckton Primary School in Northampton and the main building of Haygrove School in Bridgewater, Somerset. In a statement, Minister for School Systems Baroness Diana Barron said, this has been a challenging time for each school community. We have continued to prioritise face-to-face learning during this time and to help schools through this transition phase, we are providing each school with high-quality, long-term, temporary accommodation. We are also reviewing our contracts and seeking legal advice on how we can recover the costs where that contractor was involved. Caledonian Modular went into administration in 2022 and was bought by the JRL Group. We've contacted them for comment, but we haven't yet had a reply. Um, Okay, anyway, let's switch it up. Let's be a bit more hopeful. Yeah, Nish, what you got for me? I know that's not your, that's not your like usual. It's not my, it's not my modus operandi. <laughs> yeah. um, but my hero of the week, it's a group of campaigners and a group of MPs led by the Labour MP, Diana Johnson, who've been fighting for compensation for the thousands of people affected by the contaminated blood scandal, which has been described as the biggest treatment disaster in the history of the NHS. It's still the subject of an ongoing public inquiry, but the background here is up to 30,000 people were infected with contaminated blood after receiving blood transfer on the NHS in the 1970s and the 1980s. More than 3,000 people died after contracting HIV or hepatitis C as a result. Uh, Dinah Johnson, who leads the all-party parliamentary group on haemophilia and contaminated blood, tabled an amendment in the Commons calling for families affected to be given immediate compensation. The government accepts that there is a case for compensation but wanted to wait for the public inquiry to end That public inquiry is only set to end in March 2024. Um, And this was despite the chair of the inquiry itself calling for a full compensation scheme to be set up immediately, given that it's estimated that one person affected by the scandal dies every four days. Hence, Dinah Johnson's amendment to the Victims and Prisoners Bill, which on Monday night brought a historic defeat for the government. The eyes to the right, 246. The nose to the left... So that narrow defeat for the government by 246 votes to 242 votes came despite it whipping MPs 
to vote against the amendment. Now, this is actually Rishi Sunak's first Commons defeat and a first for the government in a whipped vote since 2019. Again, for our international listeners, I understand that is quite alarming. But uh, the the whipped vote is just when the government instructs uh, all of its MPs to vote a certain way uh, in either direction, the government or the opposition. Um, The government will now be legally required to set up a body to administer compensation within three months of the bill becoming law. Diana Johnson said it marked an important step forward in what has been an extraordinarily long fight for justice. So congratulations to her and all of the MPs, including 22 Conservatives who did the right thing and rebelled. And more importantly, congratulations to the thousands of affected families who have campaigned tirelessly for so many years and they've been supported by organisations such as the Haemophilia Society. It's an awful situation, Mm. horrible story and horrible legacy for so many families living in the United Kingdom. Um, And it's incredible that the campaigners and then with the support of Diana Johnson and those MPs were able to get this through Parliament. It's really extraordinary. So you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644572. Internationally, that's plus 447514644572. We'll also be putting out a special review of the year episode. Um, we hope you enjoy it in the week between Christmas and the new year. And we'd love to include your contributions. So please get in touch to vote for your political moment of the year. Maybe it was Boris Johnson finally getting his comeuppance from Commons Privileges Committee, or maybe it was Keir Starmer getting glitter-bombed at the Labour conference, or maybe it was Suella Braverman finally getting the sack, or maybe it was something else entirely. Got any suggestions, Nish? Well, I mean, there's a lot to choose from. I mean, Penny Mordaunt's conference speech, I think of, quite at the forefront of my mind, when, I mean, and this is just a theory... I think maybe her auto cue broke mm. and she just kept saying stand up and fight. <laughs> yeah. And it, it it really, really looked like some AI had malfunctioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's definitely a moment that I think of. Because, you know, it, with a lot of the political moments, you sort of think of them like, it was funny in the moment, but then it had terrible consequences. That was just funny. She made a speech that was absolutely unfathomable. I think it's because she held the sword at the coronation. It's gone to her head. I reckon, because you know there's that trope in so many comic book movies where you go and meet the baddie and they've always got like a sort of samurai sword just waiting. (laughs) I bet you anything, Mordaunt's got one of those. You think think she thought the sword had given her magical powers? (laughs) So she didn't need to write anything down? I think you'll be surprised. She's just at, you know, the supermarket, you know, taking her change and just saying to the, the cashier... Don't forget, stand up and fight. <laughs> I think she sees herself as a warrior now. Listen, if we're willing things into existence, my political moment of the year was when Nigel Farage was bitten by that deadly spider in Australia on the reality TV show. I don't want him to die, but I would like him to be very ill. <laughs> Is that fine? Is that legally fine? Not dead. Just not well. Like, like he gets bitten by a spider and has horrendous diarrhoea and vomiting. You better hope nothing happens to him. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Yeah. Don't forget to follow Pod Save the UK on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find us on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, we would like you to, yeah, just consider dropping us a review. Only if it's good. <laughs> I think that's important to say. Only. We only want good reviews. We only want, I mean, really five stars, but I will accept a four. 
Outside the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by Will Darkin and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Degahi. Our executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. And remember to hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.